Hello and welcome to The Intellectual Bend. I am David Gonzalez of Weird Fish Media and this is my show. Welcome to the call and we are going to be discussing an article that was published uh, not too long ago. The salt has lost its savor. And so I, I really wanted to, me and Oscar really wanted to have a conversation around that just to kind of give you guys some thinking. Oscar is going to lay out a little bit of a groundwork for us on regarding criticism and how we ought to criticize, look at our, our not just leaders and influencers, but specifically Christian leaders and influencers in, in our time. Um, so he'll lay a little bit of that and then him and I will kind of go back and forth uh, on some talking points, some questions regarding the article itself, just uh, to give you guys to flush out some things to be thinking about. So with that, we are going to start with uh, Oscar just kind of laying out some housekeeping regarding how how we should come to articles, how we should read these things, um, or the right amount of skepticism and criticism and so forth. Go yeah, on, I would just... I want to lay to lay out for our our people listening just three general principles I think should be applied when we're looking at criticizing uh, Christian leaders in particular, and they could be changed and and refined for our leaders in general. But in particular, when we're talking about men like Timothy Keller, John Piper, uh, or any of those people that kind of run in that pack, or even lesser known intellectuals, if if we were to find an article, for example, on Andrew Sandlin or Dr. David Smith, or Greg Bonson, or any of these people that aren't as well known within Christendom, but are still very influential intellectually, what would just be some guiding principles for us to hold to when we're discussing or criticizing or evaluating their ministries, their books, their articles, their speeches, whatever? And so I would lay out for you guys these three principles. Number one, Recognize Jesus's own teaching on judging others. I think this is a good place to start. It's a warning that the standards we use may be used against us. And so if this ministry takes off one day, and David and I and all you guys that are part of this, you know, you become associated with Men Act now, we could only hope that in 20 years, some young wannabe you know, want to be intellectual guys are going to come up and say, you know, that David Gonzalez, you know what he said the other day. And so we, we want to be careful that the standards we use to judge people, we judge ourselves. I and mean, Jesus is very clear about how you judge. It's not that you don't judge, it's that you judge rightly. And so when we come to criticize these men like Timothy Keller, John Piper, we want to make sure we're using the standards of the gospel. We want to make sure we're coming at them and that we're recognizing our own deficiencies uh, and the, our own things that we're not bringing to the table or lacking. And so number one, just recognize that we're going to be judged for the things that we judge other people for. So you really, really, really like be really good at judging. Okay. Number two, be wary of using condemning labels. Most people throw out heretic, apostate, false teaching. Fine. We can have those discussions, but when we apply those to leaders like Keller, Piper, all these other, we, we want to be very careful. We want to use those terms very, very rarely. And we want to be judicious in how we label people. Because when we talk about heretics, apostates, false teachers, these are men or women traditionally who are pushing forth ideas that are A, contrary to the gospel, and B, will send somebody to hell if you believe this. And so within those narrow parameters, what you find, what you want to do is you want to be very careful about how you label somebody a heretic. I just got done reading yesterday 
a 342-page book by John Stott called The Cross of Christ. I picked it up. I started reading it. Couldn't pick it down, put it down. And one of the things that I noticed in that book is John Stott, he brings out, uh, he, he talks that the cross is the most crucial subject that a Christian can discover, that a Christian can talk about. He said, it's the crux of all Christianity. There is no Christian community that's not a Christian community of the cross. So it's absolutely vital, right? The cross is essential. But throughout that 342 pages, he looks at different theologians throughout the centuries who had differing ideas about the nature of the cross. And one of the things that he points out over and over again is some people took the cross to uh, not so seriously. Some people went overboard. Some people emphasize its physicality without emphasizing its spirituality. Some people emphasize its spirituality without its physicality. Some people completely denied the idea that God would actually send his son to die as a penal substitution. That is that Jesus would take upon the penalty of us. But through the whole thing, 342 pages, not once does he call any of these men heretics. And again, this, he's talking, he's writing about the most crucial subject that a Christian can write about, the cross of Christ. Paul will say that there is, I boast in nothing else but Christ crucified. When he goes to Corinth, he says, I, I don't care about anything else unless, you, unless I hear of Christ crucified in you. In most of church history, they would acknowledge that the cross is the crux of the matter. That's where we get the word crucified crux. And so not once in 342 pages does he ever call any of these men heretics, apostates, or even false teachers. Now he says they either go too far or not far enough. He says, I disagree with them. I don't think that this aspect of it is what it's supposed to be. But I just, I found myself like, isn't he going to call anybody a heretic? Is he going to call anybody out? Now that may be John's personality. I don't know John Stott. He died a couple years ago. But it seems to me that if you're going to put forth that this is the most crucial subject that a Christian can talk about, and yet you're not willing to say that there are wolves within the pack, or you're not willing to call people out as heretics, it must mean that you want to use that word very judiciously and very rarely. And so that would be my second. So first, recognize our, that we're going to be judged by the standards we judge, that we want to use, we want to be uh, careful about using condemning level labels. Um, that's not to mean that we don't use them. It's just we want to be very judicious in how we use them. And very rarely do we call out those, call people those things. Um, and number two, um, we want to be careful to, so I'll put it this way. Any person we think is beyond criticism, we run the possibility of committing idolatry. So when I posted this article on Facebook, a guy at my church, well-educated, good guy, love him to death. V and I get along. He did not like that I posted the article and said, you know, basically, um, you know, well, if you, you know, if you throw out John Piper and Tim Keller, you got to throw out this and this. And it's like, okay. He was teetering on a, a form of idolatry. Tim Keller is not beyond criticism. John Piper is not beyond criticism. David Gonzalez is not beyond criticism. Oscar Carmona is. It doesn't matter how famous we become, how many books we write, how many public speaking events we go to, how many thousands of sermons we give, every single one of us are open to criticism. And if we can't criticize in, in a constructive way, our leaders, and that opens the way for idolatry. And the second thing is that any person we think always needs to be criticized, we run the risk of demonizing them. And so we have to be careful not, we have to avoid those two extremes. On the one hand, we can't say this person is beyond criticism. On the second thing, we can't always criticize this person and therefore demonize them. So, I mean, I'm sure there's more things that could come about. I didn't want to take up the whole time and, and lay those out, but I think in general, we can agree 
right? Um, recognize we'll be judged by these same standards. Be wary of using condemning labels like heretic, apostate, false teacher. They are appropriate, but we need to be very careful about how we use them. And then also we want to make sure we avoid the two extremes where we don't become idolatrous, where every the, the person that's in front of us, our pastors or whoever, can never make or have a wrong idea, never make a mistake in their theology or their social understanding. At the same time, we want to demonize them because they don't think like we think or because they don't interpret and apply the scriptures the way that we should think that they should. So again, we want to have that humility. So I think those are just three general principles that David and I want to throw out there that we're going to try to adhere to as we're sort of examining this article and examining these two men who, for the most part, their body of work would indicate that they have faithfully preached the gospel throughout their ministry. Maybe not in some cases and a little less in others, but for the most part, they have. And so <clears throat> those are just three general principles that I think we want to lay down and I think we can all agree to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Time, time is also a good indication. I mean, if you have something freshly off the print, let's say like a Keller who is, let's, let's for, the, for the sake of the argument of this arg article, has gone woke, um, how long has it really been? And so we ought to we ought to consider these things in in, in the relation in, in in the perspective of eternity. You know, the, these things are so new and they're flying at us so fast. Equity, wokeism, uh, progressive liberalism has transformed itself. The way we define social justice is transformed so quick. Most most Christians that I know right now that are that are a little bit older are are coming to me when I call it out. I'm like, why? What's the deal with social justice? That's that's been that's been a thing since I was little, and it's always been a good thing. Social justice has always been a good thing, but they but they what they fail to see is the nuance and how the culture has has hijacked the term, and is and is using it for their purposes to guilt people into doing their their bidding. So we're going to get into some of that. But uh, Oscar, I wanted to give you an opportunity. I've got kind of question points that I I'll go yeah. through, but I want to give you. Uh, let's talk about your three main points. What are the th or a few po points that you took away from this article? Yeah, I like the first. The first thing I want to show is uh, the the author of the article, um, <clears throat> Larry Alex Towton. Is that how you say it? Towton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, he's talking about the. Uh, he has a quote from Timothy Keller where Keller says, "When it comes, to, this is what Keller says." When it comes to talking, taking political positions, voting, determining alliances and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for, or every Christian must vote for. And, he's, and Keller says, unless you can find a biblical command to that effect. Yeah. And Tatooine takes them to task and he says, um, he says, I can think of several biblical commands that made the choice for any Bible-believing Christian absolutely clear in this election. He's talking about the 2020 election between Trump and Biden. He says, I mean, would Jesus endorse a radical pro-abortion and pro-infanticide policy? No. Every sordid sexual agenda, like the transgender agenda, which Biden just signed in that, you know, schools uh, have to let, if you identify as male, you must, you can be led on to a female teen. That's an actual thing that he signed. Or even the sexualization of small children, yeah. um, which uh, he's referring to what happened in Netflix when they had those 12-year-old girls. Um, cuties. Cuties, um, which I never, I don't, I never watched, but I heard a lot about it. And what were they doing? It was like a twerking competition, right? They're 12 years old. Um, or a complete disregard for the rule of law. 
which is what happened. He's talking about the riots in Portland and things like that, and open hostility towards his followers. He says, I don't think so. And so I think when you when you frame that, I think he he has a really good point. I mean, I wonder, I kind of wonder what would Keller say? Like, Keller, would you be when you'd endorse pro-racial abortion, the killing of innocent babies? Would you are you good for infanticide? You know, that was a policy of the Romans in the first century. And Christians went against that policy. Is that not enough to vote yeah. different? Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm speculating because, you know, I don't think Keller responded to this, but I am curious. I mean, I think that there was a clear choice as a Christian of who you should vote for. Um, I don't like Trump's personality. I didn't like Trump's personality. There are a lot of things that he did and said. I, I think he's an egomaniac. I think he understood Machiavelli's prince. But I think if the choice was between him and Biden, and these choices that that uh, Towton laid out, I would say that yeah, it's not Christian liberty. You ought not to be voting for this guy. And so I, I'm I kind of take a hard line on that. Um, so I agree with Towton that I don't agree with Keller that in this particular election, that I have a liberty of conscience. My conscience binds me to what the Word of God would say, and all of these things are antithetical to the Word of God. And so it, you know this idea that Keller can kind of wiggle out of actually coming to some type of decision and helping other Christians come to some type of decision regarding this election cycle, which we all, it's, it's maybe a moot point. We know how it worked out, but I, I think that there is something to say to, to have somebody like Keller have said, you know, I don't like Trump. I don't like some of his policies, but you know, regarding these issues, I think you should vote for him. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way I see it is he's running old software. He, he's running software that would have worked in the 50s and 60s because the distinctions between right and left weren't as apparent as they are today. Yeah. And, and so, and so he, in, in one way, he's right. Uh, the Bible doesn't really tell you who to vote for, who to vote yeah, for, but, use, but, yeah. but it gives you principles that should help indicate to you who you should not vo- vote for, therefore giving you a clear understanding of who you should vote for. Yeah, I mean, it actually tells you not to, Proverbs says not to veer to the left or the right, which means you should vote libertarian. Yeah, yeah. If only we had a a good libertarian uh, person. Yeah, I mean, are we really to think, you know, let's think about judges, for example, you know, King Eglon, you know, he, you know, where um, Ehud, the left-handed assassin, came in and, you know, struck him in the belly and he, you know, all of his bowels came out. I mean, do we really think that if the Israeli Israelites in that time had a dem- democracy, if we can just you know speculate a little bit, they had a democracy and they had okay an Israelite who affirmed the values that an Israelite would have Yahweh as God, you know the Ten Commandments, those kind of things, or Eglon, you know this Midianite tyrant who can't even stop putting food in his belly and it has said that hey you're going to serve me and pay me tribute. Do we really think that if the Israelites were in a democratic Republic, if such thing existed, again, give me some leeway in terms of, you know, right. you really think that they'd vote for the Midianite? I mean, no. So it's like, it's like I, I get Keller's position. There's nothing in the Bible that says vote Republican, vote Democrat, vote Libertarian, vote Green Party, vote Patriot Party, which Trump is trying to, you know, start right now. Right. But I think when you look at the, the principles that each party kind of lays out, I, I think for a Christian in general, on paper, there there seems to be some some really good reasons to say you should probably vote this way. And mm-hmm. and I just I think one of the things that I would like to see more from our in, intellectual elites like Keller, like Piper, 
is a little bit more boldness in that. And to say, hey, look, I don't always vote for Republican. I don't always vote for Democrats. I, but this is the policy of one. This is the policy of the other. And it seems to me that as I look at the Bible, as I gauge the general principles of the Bible, like Jesus came to give abundant life, right? Jesus came to set the captives free, right? These things that, that are general principles that aren't open so much for, for misinterpretation, I would have to look at one particular party and say, I, I think this might be a good way to vote, right? Yeah. Um, so well, in, in part, I think that's been the, the problem with our voting and with, with the Christian sentiments is that they're not principled. They're not biblically grounded and principled. They're primarily voting on personality. And I think uh, Mattson or great or David Bonson points that out. Like we've, we've put, maybe it's Andrew Sullivan. I can't recall. I've been reading so many different articles, but, but the idea that we've, we've put this personality in here and, 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 and it's caused idolatry in a lot of Christians. And then on the other side of the spectrum, it's there, you have the never Trumpers, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the problem with voting based on personality, based on uh, pseudo principles or pseudo truths and pseudo truths are essentially you've got truth and you've got pseudo or para truths that that are right next to truth they they are very similar but they're not they're not really truth and so we have to be able to and only through knowing the bible reading it understanding it being a part of a community being principled are we going to be able to detect those small nuances and the variations and the deviations rather of para truths from truth uh, and we don't elevate personalities to get what we want or what we think we need in this country. And that's been, I think, a big part of the downfall of voting for Trump in in kind of making it uh, becoming cult-like, you know, the Trumpism versus the wokeism. And it's become yeah. a whole battle. Yeah, I mean, and you see the rise of QAnon, you see the rise of these people that like Trump, you know, you know, it, it has become cult-like. And so... You know, we run the risk. And so you can kind of see why Keller and, and even Piper, Piper actually, his thing was that, you know, he said, don't even vote. <laughs> yeah. Which is stupid. Yeah. But um, so you can kind of like, so you, again, you can kind of take stock of Keller's looking at everything. He's like, man, what, what do we do? He's like, well, I have li liberty of conscience. And technically he's right. But I, I just, I, what I would like to see more from our leadership and what I would like to see, you know, hopefully the guys here would like to see from us is let's take a stance on something. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the things that greatly impacted me when I was reading Dante's Inferno and Dante's Inferno is not necessarily religious. It is. He, he talks about how he wrote it uh, as a way for to help people understand what happens after you die. And so but one of the things that struck me was one of the first places uh, in in hell, one of the first places he comes to is he sees these massive amounts of people who are. Are not, they're not burning in hell, but what they're doing is they're following a banner. They're following this flag banner, but it never plants. It, it just, it never stays, it plants. They're constantly following. It's like this whirlwind and they're always following this banner, but the banner never plants, it never falls. And he says, these are the people that not even heaven or hell wanted. And what he says, these are the people who out, throughout their life remain neutral when they should have taken a stand on something. And that that's greatly impact. I mean, I can tell you that that has greatly impacted me. It's those people who they, they, they stood back, 
They didn't want to have, they didn't want to hurt people's feelings. They didn't want to meddle in political issues or even religious issues during the middle ages when Dante was reading it, both, it was hard to see what was political and what was religious, but Dante reserved, he said that he said, heaven didn't want them and hell spit them out. And these are people that refused to take a stand. They took no risk in life. They, they made no, no, no stand. They just took it easy. And his intention with the banner is that they didn't take any political stances. And so I think this myth of neutrality, which is is what I got from Keller, I I just I I don't know that it's tenable long term from from Piper. You got that from Piper. Uh, Well, Keller's the the freedom of conscience thing. That was Keller who said that. But yeah, so so but I want to take that principle there that you just laid out for us. And I want to I want to put to take that back to Keller. I, I think Keller did take a position and I think. Now I'm speculating here. I'm analyzing here. I think he took an analyzed, calculated risk. In a lot of, I think a lot of Christians did as well. They thought because Trump is so toxic, because they couldn't stand his tone and his mannerisms, that they thought Biden would be a better option just on those two standings alone. And he outlines that in the. Uh, he says. Um, Anyways, anyways, so I think he did take a risk. I think he planted his flag on the on the Biden camp, thinking that that would be a better option. That he wouldn't go and do as much as he has done in the first, just in the first week of his presidency. And I and I I can almost I'm hoping and praying that uh, as as he's sitting there, Keller, as he's sitting there watching this all unfold, thinking, "What have I done? What have I done?" But I don't know. That's yeah. No, I, I mean, based upon the video we watched today, I wouldn't be surprised if he's like, yeah, I think I made the right choice. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and I was speaking more to his advice here of, you know, liberty of conscience. I, you know, I'm not going to take a stand, right? You, you can take a stand, take a stand wherever you want. We have a liberty to do this. And it's like, I don't know, man. Sometimes I want to plant a flag. Now, I want to I plant a flag on a small hill when it comes to things that are political, but I still want to have hills to plant a flag on, right? Like the Mount Rushmore for us is the gospel, right? Anytime the gospel is coming under attack, the cross of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, right? Those are big flags that we, you know, infallibility of scripture, all those things. That's a big plan of flag. Boom. That's the Mount Everest, Mount Rushmore, Mount Everest of, of our faith. But the, that's where, but these little hills, you know, pro-life, little hill, boom, right? Yeah. Against transgender policies that deny the actual humanity of people, because, you know, that, that, that you can bring your own reality into them, become a man when you are actually a woman, right? I'm not going to abide by that. That's against the image that actually makes you, that makes you an image of nothing rather than the person who's an image of God. I'm going to plant a flag right there. And I'm going to say, I'm not moving. And it's a small hill to conquer. And I'm still, but I'm, but I'm, as I'm moving up, I want to have small hills to plant that flag. I don't want to be that person who's constantly chasing after the wind. And um, I just can't see in my my brain how pro-life, pro-male, female, um, whatever, you know, pro, uh, you know, anti-infanticide, you know, sexualization of children ought to be a small hill we plant on. We ought to say no. I just can't imagine taking a neutral position on these things, it, it, even politically, right? There's a party out there that says, hey, we're going to go after child pornography. That's going to be our main focus. You know, um, you know, you have my support. Why wouldn't you? If there's a candidate who's out there who's going to do that. So I don't know this wishy-washy neutrality. Um, you're right. He probably did. He eventually took a stand and he eventually picked a side and most likely voted for Biden. But I'm just saying in regards to this particular c- comment, um, that that's very neutral for me. And 
I'd like for him to plant a flag somewhere and, and say, this is where I'm going to go. So. Yeah. And that was the, that was one of the key questions the article starts off with. It's, you know, it's obviously Keller is influential. Yeah. And so the question influence. is, is it, is it good influence? Is, is, is it good influence? Good. Yeah. 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 And I, and that's ultimately what, yeah, you're right. We probably should have talked about that a little bit. That's really the, the, the main thesis of the, or the main question within the article is, is that influence good? And uh, that that's that's going to be harder to judge. I mean, right now we're we're trying to break down certain things. Um, I can tell you that I've been influenced by Keller um, a lot, and I think the majority of what he's preached, the majority of what he's read, I was I was uh, kind of thumbing through the meaning of God the other day. And I forgot how just how good that book is. Um, you know, I have his commentary, and so so I mean, I've been influenced by Keller a lot, but I've also just for, for whatever reason this past couple of years have been very especially with the rise of the social justice movement and, you know, the, the racial inequality myth that he perpetuates. I've just been kind of like, how are you so smart? How are you so into the gospel? And yet you can't see behind these things, what everybody else seems to be able to see. So either according to Micah's video, it's that he's intentionally hiding some type of Marxist uh, revolutionary, pseudo-christian sort of uh facade um or he just doesn't he just picks up whatever he picks up and he just goes with it i I just i he's he's hard to muster right he's hard to figure out sometimes but when you look at his body of work i've read a lot of keller and when you look at his body of work um I, i still think the guy is is a christian and i think he still faithfully preaches the gospel i think he's just been captured by this sort of this 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 offshoot of, of social justice and, and all these other things. Well, and, he, and he's not a special phenomenon. Many, many Christians have been. Many, many, many Christians have been. Yeah. I mean, and, most of the white people in my church, I mean, are, you know, yeah, rah, rah, social justice. And I'm like, man, where have you been? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, um, it's like, it's like, you don't, you don't talk about anything else but this, you know, I'm like, you know, when they come for you and, you know, they want to do violence, so you want you print out all your Facebook notes and say, look, I'm, I was for your cause. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it, I don't, I don't know. It, there's some people in our church that it just, uh, you know, they, like, I have black friends at this and I have black friends at that. And it's like, well, so do I. I was like, you know, but I mean, if this is wrong, it's wrong. If, if there's really, if, if these ideologies are really undergirded or undergirded by Marxism, critical race theory, if you, if, if the idea that there are, there's uh, an oppressor and an oppressed class. And the only way to look at life is through those two lenses and only white people can be the oppressors and only black people can be the oppressed. We have a problem, right? Yeah. And that, I think that's one of the things that's been frustrated me about some people in my church that I've had conversations with is they don't even see it like that. They have all these statistics about how blacks are not held or have this lower income and have this lower income. And because I'm, I've been reading a lot of uh, Thomas Sowell. <laughs> I, uh, I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, how many of those black children were raised in single parent households without a father? They're like, well, I don't know. It's like, okay, you probably want to ask that question. How many of those were res- uh, African American kids? These kids that you're supposedly talking about that have been oppressed by white people. How many of those kids, you know, were um, had college educated parents? How many of those kids were raised in poor neighborhoods, had a public education as opposed to a private, like? There's, it's so much deeper than just 
you're white, you're an oppressor, you're black, you're oppressed. And that standard seems to be what has sort of crept into those people who want to push social justice apart from the gospel have bought into this idea that because of their skin color, they are inherently oppressed or oppressor. And I think that's the gospel that we need to really kind of, that's the, not the gospel, that's the uh, underlying thing that we really need to be sensitive to when we're talking to people whether black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, right? Yeah, well, the analysis is incorrect. They, they're they using a univariant uh, analysis to look at certain things. They're saying this one variable, this one variable that is your color and my color is the main, de- is the main detail, the main data point that should indicate what's going on here. Mm-hmm. But any thinking person who understands understands the analysis better like a Sowell or a Jordan Peterson or James Lindsay or any of those folks that are, or, you know, that are fighting this stuff right now, it's multivariant. There's multiple variants. And, and so essentially what they're doing is um, oppressing the individual because there is no such thing as an individual anymore because you belong to a group. And there's more differences for us as thinking Christians. We know that there are more differences between individuals in the same race than there are between groups, between two different, between two different groups, between blacks and Mexicans or Mexicans and whites. We, yeah, we, Angel and I had an encounter with my wife and I had an encounter with a woman. We were getting physicals and she came over to our house, a black woman in her sixties. And, um, I was, I was in my head. I was like, please, let's not talk about politics. Let's not talk about politics. <laughs> Cause I didn't know. I didn't know. Uh, it turns out she is a faithful Christian. She stayed like she should have taken 30 minutes. She was there for two hours. We had a fantastic conversation with her, um, loves Jesus all. And she said, this whole black lives matter. This is what she said. She was like, she's, I don't get it. Her son, her college age son, four years ago was murdered up in, um, up here in, um, uh, in a college near College Station. It wasn't College Station. It was a smaller one. It was, I forget the name of it. Four years ago, her, her African-American son was killed by his roommates, three other African-Americans. Four years ago, and the guy is still not, has still not gone to trial. Hmm. She says, Black Lives, she goes, does my son's life not matter? She goes, where was Black Lives for my son? She goes, because he was killed by three other African-Americans. Somehow his life is less than these men who were killed by these white cops and so on and so forth. And so it was an interesting perspective. You know what I mean? She wasn't a Trump supporter, but she had this interesting perspective. She was like, what about my son? And so I think there are people out there who, who recognize sort of um, the limits that critical race theory has and the limits that these groups like Black Lives Matter have because you know, I forget what town it was, but there was a little girl, her parents, she was a black girl. Her parents drove the wrong street. There was a protest. Somebody popped off a couple shots, killed the girl. Barely a blip from the media because yeah. she happened to be, she was, and she was black, but she was shot by protesters. So you can't do that. Well, that's, you, you yeah. Well, so, so that's, so that's the danger of this, the power dynamic that critical race theory and the Marx, the neo Marxists portray is that, you know, the danger, the danger is one, obviously it's not true, right? So you start perpetuating a lie. The other thing is that the things that happen within that group are justified and, ex- and excused away. They're, you, because you they're the exception away. and not the rule. But really, right. when you look at statistically violence on violent, black on black violence, it's much mm-hmm. higher amongst black on black. But you can't say that, right? Mm-hmm. We can say it here. <laughs> but I mean, well, we could probably say, I'm going to say well, it anywhere. But well, I mean, what, but yeah. But um, what, what they're going to do is they'll justify. So in order to change the power structure 
in this corrupt power struggle that that exists now and has been existing for the found since the founding of our nation and probably further back 1690 right yeah 1619 yeah that you have to overthrow it so you have to use aggression force power you have to accumulate more power to overthrow the patriarchy let's say but but those that that protesting the violence anything that comes from that side is completely justified because mm-hmm. of the power dynamics and yeah ultimately they're doing it for the greater good which fulfills a utilitarian aspect and right. if there's a little friendly fire you know if a, if some black businesses burn down if a couple black girls get shot in the crosshairs hey they're just martyrs for the cause, right? That's right. And I can't point you to somebody who said that, but I can tell you that those things were swept under the rug. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, there anything to switch the oppressed oppressors to the uh, uh, or the oppressed to the oppressors. But and then you you did this, I think, a couple of months ago when you kind of laid out critical race theory for us. It was very helpful. I think you recorded it would probably be helpful to just send it back out to people because it's going to keep coming up critical race yeah. theory Marxism, all that stuff but you know one of the things that you pointed out i think you pointed out i'm pretty sure you did was that well at some point you know if the whole goal is for the oppressed class to overthrow violently the oppressors they become the oppressors they become the oppressors and so it would be justified then that the oppressed class whether whatever their class may be you know, assuming assuming the 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 plight of the BLM and the Antifa, and let let's say the Marxists get their result, right? They they violently overthrow the government, ensue anarchy, and they become the uh, they they you know they rise out of their oppressed class, and whites become on the bottom and blacks become on the top. Let's just simplify it. Well, now based upon their own theory and based upon their own standards of justice, the, the whites have every opportunity and have every right to then overthrow them. <clears throat> Yep. And so it's it's really a never-ending cycle of revolution, right? There's there's no cutoff for it. Of course, they would say, no, no, no. You you know you're you're um, characterizing our uh, you know character. It's a caricature of our understanding. You know, once the oppressors, once the oppressed rise up and you know do away with the oppressors, there'll be peace and utopia. And the reality is that history just doesn't play that out. Yeah. Um, from the French Revolution to World War One, World War Two, from any time the oppressors. Attempt South Africa. Anytime they attempt to rise above and to the oppressed, they become the oppressors. And so, it, there's um, there's no hope in those kind of things. Right? There's no, so, and that's yeah. that's the main feature. That's the main feature or bug in the in in this software is that there's no hope. It lacks hope. It's just this constant revolt, 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 and it's yeah. So it's frustrating then when you have somebody like Keller, um, you know, who's going out there and talking about these racial discriminations and racial discrimination does happen. But is it happening in a way that is systematic, systemic? Is is there an undergirding because I'm half white? Am I just implicitly and in, 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 uh, uh, in, intuitively or not intuitively? Um, unconsciously. Am I unconsciously? Uh, biased. Bias. Am I unconsciously racist? And I think that's that's. Maybe Keller has explained that, but that's that's the one thing. Um, and, it, and it seems like for a guy who's so intellectual to just fall onto these things and, and to crash onto them so hard without giving it a thought. And then one of the things that the video that Micah had that pointed out, uh, his book, you know, uh, on justice, um, you know, I read a counter book, not a counter book, but I read a guy who's under Keller who was talking about the minor prophets. And he did the same thing Keller did. And when I was reading it, I was like, he would substitute righteousness and justice. These are two, these are synonymous terms that the Bible puts together 
and some of the minor prophets and then some of the older prophets, they, they put righteousness and justice together. They say, you, you have neglected righteousness and justice, or you should pursue righteousness and justice. And this guy did what Keller did because he was, he's under Keller. He, he's one of Keller's, you know, protégés. Yeah. And when he did it in the book, I almost put the book down because I thought, well, first of all, you're rewriting scripture. Don't do that. Right. I mean, I think if you're going to make a fair application, you know, um, if, if you're going to make an application of that and say, well, righteousness and justice become social justice. Uh, okay. Like I'm fine with, with, taking it saying, this is what it means, but this is not what it is. I mean, what they seem to do is say, anytime you see righteousness and justice, substitute it for social justice. And I'm like, uh, let's, let's back off here because righteousness has a very particular understanding, biblically speaking, and so does justice or justification. And all of them, they don't, they don't stem from just social justice. They stem from the justice that is given to us by God, hmm. right? And so, um, uh, and as a matter of fact, the word for justice is mishpat in Hebrew, and it's the same word that's used for pattern. And so justice in the Bible is actually bringing the pattern of heaven down on earth. And so when we, when we attempt to say, okay, it's applied as social justice, but we're going to say that these two words together mean, and righteousness means to be accepted by God. That's what righteousness at its root is. So when you neglect righteousness and justice, you're neglecting the acceptance that God has for people based upon the pattern of heaven. But when you say this is now social justice, you're you're sort of not only you're misinterpreting it, you're misapplying that word. And so, right. and so as that video pointed out, I, I do agree on that particular aspect. Is that that's a wrong-headed approach to redefining those two words together, righteous and justice to say social justice. And as Andrew Sandlin pointed out um, in his, uh, in his talk, all justice is social. Like you, like justice is by definite, like one of the things that justice is, is it is social. So it's kind of redundant, even in our understanding to place social before justice, because if I'm going to go out and, and, and those, those three men who murdered that this woman's husband, if I'm going to pursue justice against them, the pattern of heaven coming down, if I'm going to pursue justice against them, um, it will have social consequences for those people. They must go to prison. They must be punished. So there's all sorts of problems with, number one, when we try to take these phrases and then sort of uh, summarize them with these new key words that people are confused by, and then there's all these problems when we try to make these words redundant and say social justice, that all justice is by, def it, by definition social. So why the redundancy? Well, and that's, that's, a, that's a feature, again, of critical theory. It's, it's overly critical and to the point where you, the only way you can buy into some of these ideas is if you're really educated. You know, you have to be an intellectual to buy into these things because common people just don't see it. In the same way well because we're we have more common sense we have more common sense yeah. I, okay. I would yeah don't call me i would not want to be called an intellectual i but because I, I have common sense like right. anyways yeah, I, yeah okay i want to move into two more two more points uh, that he makes in this article um so two more things i want to talk about and then i want to on the second one i want to submit uh an analysis or a theory that i have regarding something that lewis calls out men without chest right um, which is this idea that, you know, this wrong offense and that we're, that our culture, especially specifically with our men are risk adverse. Uh, okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is, uh, Oscar is with you is, um, should we be divisive? Is there room 
for Christians, I mean, obviously there is this us versus them naturally. Naturally, we can't get get around it. Ideally, what we're aiming for is unity and human flourishing, right? Mm -hmm. Through the blood of Christ. And yet there exists this division that happens. And by, by, by a natural, by taking a stand, by planting the flag, there's going to be division. Yeah. What do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> well, first of all, I mean, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane prays that, that his church. So <clears throat> he not only prays for his disciples and he moves into this, this section, I think in John 17, 17, where he starts talking about everybody that comes into him, that they would be one. And so there's some theologians that Riley would say that one of the main ideas behind Christianity is that when you are brought into this very unique community, which God has created. So becoming a Christian means that you not just that you have Jesus as your personal savior, not just that you're following him as your Lord, trusting him, worshiping him, all those things, but that you're actually brought into a community. You're actually brought into a, a worldwide, every nation, every tongue, every tribe community. And it's one of the special privileges being a Christian is being in community. If all of a sudden I was teleported to sub-Saharan Africa and I was picked up, well, let me tell you this. Let me let me do this. So I'm gonna. Uh, uh, when Coratine Boone, uh, she was uh, captured by the Nazis, put into a Nazi concentration camp, and she noticed that in that concentration camp were a lot of people who didn't. She was Hungarian, I think, and a lot of people didn't speak Hungarian, but they would. They started this Bible study, this sort of retroactive bio study within uh, Ravenclaw is what it was called this this heavily heavily Nazi occupied area this heavily heavily uh, concentration camp it's like the second Aus Auschwitz okay so she gives these bible studies and all these people from all these different nations that that Germany has brought in Russian Hungarian Yugoslavian all these things they they're in this little room and they're in this little tight quarters and uh, Corey Ten Boone says that there was a woman that came up to her and had been going to the Bible study, and she's trying to say something to Corey Ten Boone. She's trying to say something. Of course, she doesn't, she doesn't speak the language. It's Russian or Ukrainian or something. And finally, the woman grabs her hand and just starts making the, 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 the cross symbol on her hand. And what she was trying to communicate to Corey Ten Boone is, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And what she did was she made the cross. That's how she knit it. That's how she knew she was a Christian. And so I guess my point is um, <clears throat> we are a unique community that has been uh, created by God through Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the one thing that Jesus prays for when he thinks in the future of not just his <clears throat> disciples, but everybody, is that there would be unity, that they would be one. There's no other way to, to understand that prayer. And so there is a certain degree to where divisiveness, when it creates factions and when it creates a hostility amongst that community, whether through pride, whether through envy, through anger, through competition with one another, um, that divisiveness can be a, a cancer and can be a poison. And wherever we are, uh, whatever church we're in, whatever ministry we're a part of, um, factions, divisiveness, um, anger and hostility amongst Christians really ought to be weeded out. There ought to either be reconciliation or excommunication. If, if we're too divisive, we cannot be a coherent um, uh, ministry for Christ. All of that to say, it doesn't mean that we take passive stance on things that the Bible is very, very clear about. 
And so if you're asking me that should Christians be divisive, my question to you is as much as possible, uh, Paul will say this, as much as possible, live in peace with all men. But where there are, where there are serious differences um, theologically, spiritually, Christologically, ecclesiology, right, where, we, where there are clear indications that something is right and something is wrong, we ought to, in a spirit of love, be able to have that discussion without being divisive, right? Or by being divisive, I'm sorry, uh, in order to, to get to the heart of something. There is a certain degree to which if, David, if you called out my sin, that in, you, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be comfortable. It, it, might even, it might even hurt my feelings. You might anger me. Is that being divisive? No. If you don't love me, you wouldn't call out my sin, right? And so, um, so there is a time and a place for divisiveness. There's a time and a place for argument. There's a time and a place to have those really tough discussions. They should be somewhat rare. Um, but I, I don't think, uh, for the most part, I think Christ wants us to be unified. But I don't think the presence of divisiveness in and of itself says that a, a church is not unified. Um, one last example, my dad called me up. This was like a year ago. They wanted to become members of this church, and my dad said, "We just don't agree with a lot of what they, what what we what they do." And I was like, "Well, tell me what you don't agree with." And they gave me some things. I said, "Well, those are those are secondary issues." And he goes, "Okay." He goes, "But we don't agree." And I said, "Look," I said, "I would be more concerned if you came to me and said, man, everything this guy says is gold. Everything everybody says is perfect. I would be more concerned if you had no disagreements.'" than if you had these disagreements. And I said, part of being a part of a local body is that bearing with one another. So you're not always going to agree on everything. And I would be more concerned if you did agree on every little thing than if you didn't agree. And so I said, I said this, that the fact that you disagree on these small points, but you agree on these big points probably indicates you actually should be at that church. And they've been faithful members since that conversation. Um, but for some reason, we think that in order to have unity, we have to have complete, total, homogenous agreement on every issue that could come up in every Christian, and that to disagree on these things means that you're being divisive, and it's just not true, right? So um, there's a place for it, but I think uh, we just need to be careful about how we introduce it. Well, that goes into the second point, <laughs> this idea of be being risk-adverse, right? Like we're so risk-adverse that we're not even willing to offend our brother in, and not, not so much offend him for the sake of offending him, but uh, risk losing the relationship because you're um, speaking truth. You're calling out a certain sin. And when you do that, it's, you have to know uh, when we do that, it's fire. You're essentially summoning fire and you're throwing them in the fire because what you're trying to do is call out some impurity that's in them. And the only way to get it out is by throwing them in the fire and it's got to be pulled out. And so when you throw someone in the fire, they're going to have an adverse reaction. And that adverse reaction could be blocking you on social media, never being your friend, leaving the church, those kinds of things. We, we have to run the risk. And this, this goes into um, a theory that I have <clears throat> in regards to this whole idea of being civil, right? Reducing Jesus Christ and his love and love thy neighbor to this idea that we ought to be civil with one another. Now, I generally speaking, sure, yes. Ideally, you could you could be civil with, with among your brothers, uh, but not with the essentials, right? There's there's some there's gonna be times where you have to, as Lewis says, we're we're a fighting religion. 
there's a reason why that's true consistently throughout history. And it will continue to be true uh, going forward. So my, my theory here, this whole idea of men without chests is um, in my industry, what I saw in the maritime industry, what I saw, what, what was happening in the industry is that people, people were getting hurt a lot less because of, because of three things. The, the industry standards were getting better. The procedures and the protocols were getting better and the safety equipment was getting better. Okay. Those are all good things, right? We've, we basically made the workplace safer for, for people who work out in the, in the, in the atmosphere, who will work out in the field, right. For white collars. Um, but the, but the problem is you've greatly reduced their uh, exposure to things going wrong. And so you can't always simulate those things all the time in the workplace. It's hard to simulate those things in the workplace. So what happen is what happens is you have guys that are being trained who go through all their training, who go through years uh, in the work field, in the workplace, who never have an incident. But whenever that one thing does happen, they can't recognize the signs. So trans- transfer that theory into what we're experiencing now. We've, we've had such a safe environment for men where, where women especially have taken the brunt of it. They've, they've stepped up into the workplace. They're leaders. They're doing all this stuff. They enable men. Men are, adolescence is prolonged. Men have not had enough exposure to hardship, to working in, in harsh conditions, to having their feelings tested, their endurance tested. And because of that, we've, we've kind of fallen asleep at the wheel. And because of that, we can't even understand what it means to love like the way Jesus loves. We don't, we just, we just don't understand it because we haven't had the exposure. I would say our, our generation, uh, roughly speaking, Frank is older here. He's, he probably grew up in a different time. Our generation probably got a little bit of that towards like our twenties. And then after that, it tapered off. Certainly that was the experience for me. It tapered off. Uh, but, but more and more our cultures are, or generations after that haven't experienced hardship, good hardship. And now look what's happening. They're flaying all over the place. They can't handle their emotions. They're easily triggered, easily tripped. And as a consequence, um, you have all these different things like buying into social social justice, identity politics, critical theories, and all the different variations of that. Uh, it's it's maddening. And I think, I think that's part of the problem. So there's something to be said about enduring suffering and hardship that we're just kind of missing in our time. And it's coming back with the vengeance. What do you, you have any response to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's where some of the men that I read that aren't Christians would probably really like this conversation is that that um, there's somehow there was a generation of men and they've pinpointed it to around the 1990s, late 1990s, who are growing up now into the 2000s. Right. Um, John Hannadit. Uh, he's a social psychologist out of Canada, wrote a book. I forgot what it's called. Uh, Jordan Peterson is another person who's kind of uh, the, what, was he the one that said the wussification of men? Maybe that was not him, somebody no, else, but I don't think so. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, I think even, I think from a, a Christian perspective, we, we really ought not to be risk averse. We ought to expect suffering. And uh, one of the things that came out of the book, on uh, the co- the cross of Christ, so John Stott was reading one of the one of the principles I got how we how we approach criticism of our leaders, 
is is that connection between being a person of the cross and suffering. Uh, you will suffer if you are a Christian. You you should just get ready for that. You might suffer in different degrees than what other people, right? You, you you're not going to have your skin flayed. You're not going to be you know you're not going to be hung on the gallows. You're not going to be you know you you might lose a friend or two on social media. Okay, you know what I mean. Um, if for the sake of the gospel, not because you're an asshole. Um, and so, so suffering is just a part of being a Christian. It's part of the program, right? And, um, and so to, to be risk adverse in that sense, to not, to live your life in such a way that everything is comfortable, that all that you do, uh, every day is just to make sure that, that, um, you know, you feel good in that sense, um, is, is probably is when the suffering comes and it will, um, it's, you're probably going to have that dark night of the soul, right? Where you start to question the reality of God, of who he is and, and those sorts of things. And so I always kind of liking, so I, I remember a number of years ago, uh, a woman, but she came up and she wanted prayer. And part of the prayer was that, um, what was it? She seems like she never had time to get anything done. Her life was all about other people and she can't get anything straight and, you know, all this other stuff. And, and she wanted a prayer so that these other people would help her, would, would, you know, be part of her life. And my prayer went something like this is like, you know, kill this pride and vanity that she has to think that these people owe her anything. And, uh, uh, like a year ago when we went, Angel and I went down to Corpus Christi, she was reflecting on that prayer. She goes, I hated it. <laughs> she said, I hated that prayer. She goes, but as time went on, I realized that I really, that I really needed to hear that, that I was, you know, I was laying these burdens on other people because they were making my life very uncomfortable. And I was angry at that. She goes, and somehow you fleshed that out. And I said, that wasn't me. That was the Holy Spirit. But, um, but yeah, I mean, so there's a certain extent to where um, to, to, to ready yourself for these sufferings, for these risk adversenesses. It's to just anticipate that something like you're, you're anticipate it's going to happen every day, that your schedule is going to change. You're going to get a flat tire. You're going to get a call at work that you don't like. You're going to have things happen to you every day that are these minor inconveniences that actually are, are, are uh, helping to expand, if we, if we will, the, the conditioning of your soul to accept possible, the possibility of some great suffering, right? And so, um, but we don't, we don't tend to think of that like that. Every day we tend to wake up and we want to be more and more comfortable, not more and more uncomfortable. And so I think, uh, I think some of these social psychologists that you and I read, and I think even to a certain extent, the scriptures, um, although I don't have any in particular in my head, but there are a lot that talk about the suffering of Christ. I think we should, um, we shouldn't wake up expecting everything to go the way that we expect it to go very comfortably we should be waking up thinking like conquerors saying, okay, things are going to happen. Problems are going to come up and, and Lord be with us, help us. Um, but we shouldn't, you know, well, you, get, and it, yeah, you shouldn't and it, get a flat tire and it ruin your day. You, you shouldn't get a bad call from your boss and it completely demoralizes you. It, it should be, Oh, this is part of living in this world that's fallen. And um, okay, tomorrow I'm going to try to do better. Right. And that's part of the reason I know you guys probably hate me doing this. Part of the reason is I like doing martial arts every day. It's a different person every day. It's a different thing. Martial. It's one of the most uncomfortable things is to go into a room, put on a mouthpiece, put on boxing gloves and know the possibility that you could get knocked out. It's very uncomfortable, but the more and more I do it, the more and more comfortable I become in that environment. Right. 
And so what I'm saying is that you ought not to go out tomorrow and become a sadist or a masochist, right? Don't go out and empty your bank account, tear your clothes, put sackcloth on and pour sand over your head, but be willing to accept little sufferings that happen throughout the day, right? One of the things that we, we pray with our kids whenever they get hurt is we say, thank you, God, for these small sufferings that remind us of a big God. And it's one of those little key concepts that we're introducing into our kids' uh, uh, daily lives so that when they have a, a boo-boo or they get a bad grade or they get in trouble because they've done something wrong, and when we reconcile that relationship or when we come in and we pray for them because they got hurt, we always end it or come into there and we say, thank you, God, for this small suffering that reminds us of a big God. Because C.S. Lewis says, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said, um, God speaks to us in our pleasure he whispers to us in the good times, but he shouts at us during our pain. And so pleasure and good times and all those things, you almost forget that God exists, but it's when you're in pain that you actually hear God shouting out to you. And so we ought not to neglect when God wants to communicate to us. So, I don't know. Well, and it, and it goes, and the final thought I'll say is it goes back to the exposure like if you if you're examining yourself and you realize you have no exposure to any kind of suffering, then you have to ask, am I going out and am I trying to conquer? And I don't mean that in the way the world means that. I mean that in the sense that as Christians, are you are you looking to advance the kingdom of God in all areas of your life, in all conversations, in all different spheres? If you're not thinking about that, if you're not intentionally doing that, there won't be a lot of hardship other than your own feelings getting hurt every once in a while when someone triggers you on social media. Um, so the, there's something to, and this is the, the theory that I put out there, is that the lack of exposure creates men without chests. And yeah. so the question is, is not like, not the extreme, like I'm going to go and start a fight. No, it's not that. It's not the way the world means it. It's, we don't subvert in the same way that the world subverts us. We don't use the same tactics. Are we going out as conquerors, conquering our giants and our dragons? Because they're out there. Yeah. I mean, statistically speaking, you ought not to have a family. You ought to be single your whole life. Um, people who tend to be single tend to have more money, uh, tend to not have as many problems. Um, it's married couples that tend to have a little bit higher rates of depression. Um, short term, overall, married couples are more happier than non-married couples. But there's something about um, there's something about getting married that there's some there's some that that dying to oneself that Ephesians talks about. There's some suffering that goes on into getting married, and so I you know I think if you if you surveyed people and maybe there's some statistics out there maybe somebody has done it. But if you survey I think if you survey men single men you ask why aren't you married young single men right um, you know they they probably say something I don't want to be tied down I don't want to be tied down. You know, I haven't lived. I want to have these experiences, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I think probably underlying some of that is that it's risky being married. Yeah. It's, it's risky having kids, uh, you know, it's risky having to settle down and get a job, get a mortgage, buy a car, be responsible. There's not a lot of risk. I mean, I'm not saying being single doesn't have its risk. Okay. Um, I'm not. And so I, you know, please don't misunderstand me. Those of you who are single. But being married is is one of the most uh, riskiest things that you can do. Uh, it's, it's dangerous. You're, you're risking the possibility. Uh, you know, most people get married within six to nine months of meeting somebody. 
Um, the psychoanalysts will tell you that uh, when you first fall in love with somebody, there's a chemical that's released in your, your brain. I forget the name of the chemical. That chemical usually lasts within 18 months. It's depleted. So you think about all those couples that are, you know, going out for six months, having a three-month, uh, you know, courtship, and then getting married at month nine. They still have nine months for that 18 months to come along, which is why most people have really difficult first year, two year, three years of marriage because you're kind of stuck with this person now. You know what I mean? And so, again, I'm not saying that being single is bad, and I'm not saying uh, Paul commended singleness. Um, and so I'm not saying, but if you want to be risky go get married, uh, go have little Daniels and little Davids and little Oscars and have to sit there and discipline them for things that you did 10 times worse than they did. Risk being a hypocrite towards your kids, risk trying to do better than you did, than your parents did for them. Right. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, I think to your point, um, men are risk averse and there's certain other areas that they're risk averse. But I think when it comes to the family, there's huge that, right? Men have bought into this idea that they need to sow the royal oats. They need to go out and experience life. And, and you know, and, and once they've had their full, so to speak, then they can settle down. Well, by that time, all the women who want to actually get married earlier, all the good ones are gone and you have to settle for what's left, um, which could be good or could be bad. But one of the things that my angel and I, we, my, my wife and I, we've been together since we were 15. We got married at 21. And one of the things that we've been talking about lately, and here, here's my situation. I have not worked full time since October. Uh, I'm in the oil and gas industry. Things have not been well. Um, thankfully, we anticipated being out of work. The Lord allowed us to save up you know, money so that we can kind of weather this storm. But we're, we're in kind of not bad straits. But, you know, I have not had I've been billing maybe once or twice a month. So you think about out of 22 potential work days I've only billed twice. So my income has dropped dramatically. Um, and we're having conversations about the fact that we've almost never been happier. And that as we get older, our marriage tends to get better. We have better fights. My wife and I are experts at arguing at this point. Um, we have more cons consistency and coherency when it comes to how we discipline, how we raise our kids, although we don't always agree. But we don't have if you looked at us if you looked at us materially um to a certain extent you say oh, you don't have a job she doesn't have a job you have no income you don't know when you're going to work again you might say you should be kind of desperate right now and we're not we're having conversations about how well our kids are doing about how they could be doing better it's it's just so interesting what being a father and a husband uh and and all that does to you it it's complete, it's risky, but it builds you, you know what I mean? And right. so if you're a single guy and that's your calling, by all means, right? Jesus even says there are some men who are called to be single, some men who are made single. And so, and Jesus himself was single. I mean, so by no means are we saying you can't be uh, risky and single or not single. Like by all means, you can be. I'm just saying that I think one of the attacks on marriage is this idea that it's uh, uh, that it is risky and people don't want to take that risk. And um, all right, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you're interested to learn more about what I do, you can check me out at www.weirdfishmedia all one word dot com. That's weirdfishmedia dot com, and you can probably find me on all the other social media platforms out there. 
Until the next time, this is The Intellectual Bend. Catch you later. Thank you.